Hello. Good to see you. Question for you. What are you up to in your Christian life? Um, do you think you're a, a baby Christian? Do you think you're a mature Christian? Maybe you think, I don't even know what they are, so maybe I'm not yet one. Uh, if you've not come to the realisation yet, the Christian life uh, is actually a journey. Uh, there's progress to be made uh, from, from birth, or in our case, rebirth, uh, through childhood and adolescence, where you become really annoying, uh, uh, to adulthood and then to maturity. Uh, though there's two very indif- important differences to our normal uh, life journey in the Christian journey. Uh, one is uh, there's a time before we're reborn. In, in the Christian life, okay? There's a time before you're a Christian and there's, there's development in that as we you know, don't know any Christians and you get to hear Christians and, and what they're on about and those kind of things. And then once you accept the message of Jesus, then, then, then you're reborn into God's family. Uh, the other big difference is that unlike our physical lives where our bodies and our minds start to decay and fade, uh, that's not meant to be the case in the Christian life. There's meant to be a continual development uh, moving forward in our maturity, understanding in our godliness as we grow to know God more and more deeply uh, in our lives and start to take on his mindset and his values uh, as we start to see what uh, what drives him and what he says should drive us. So it transforms us such that uh, we start to see what really matters. So we start to rejoice in the things that God rejoices in and, and grieve at the things he grieves over and hate what he hates such that we learn things like contentment and joy even in our sufferings in the midst of life's pain and difficulties. And such that we start to understand what the true blessings of God really look like because they're not immediately obvious until you do start to grow as a Christian what the blessings of God are. And one of the most incredible blessings we can receive as God's children, as his people, is when we start to take an interest in and develop and begin to influence other people who are coming along behind us in the journey. Uh, It's not just a matter of obedience as we were looking at last week. It should be something that fills us with gratitude and joy as we see the effect we're having on other people in their Christian walk. Um, Whether it's the joy of seeing someone come to grasp uh, how incredible Jesus is and understand the cross and that you know, they don't have to do anything to be saved. They can become God's child themselves just by trusting him. Or whether it's the joy of seeing them grow up as Christians and, and start to fulfil their potential. These are amongst the most wonderful and precious things that you can ever experience. Indeed, listen to the words from the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica at the end of our reading in chapter 2 and verse 19. He says, For what is our hope our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. Now, his joy is these people who he's given his life to, people who through his personal ministry have have come to know Jesus Christ and, and people who through his deliberate and intentional investment in them have flourished in their Christian lives. Uh, Now, the Bible calls that process uh, making disciples. Making disciples is not just evangelism where you help them come to know Jesus, but 
but helping them to grow. And so Jesus in the Great Commission says, go make disciples, baptising them, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded them, right? So discipleship's a process where, where one person, a older, more mature Christian, helps someone else come to know Jesus, but then to develop, to get settled in the Christian life and then start to, to grow towards maturity, uh, making disciples. Uh, and our church motto, um, we haven't gone over that in a while, but he's making disciples who make disciples of Jesus. And if you want to see what the effects of discipleship look like, just come back to chapter 1 for a second. Um, let's say like verse 3, as Paul talks to these people who he shared with and shaped, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Or verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcome the message of joy given by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so that they start to copy those more mature than the one who shared his life with them and Jesus who's gone before him. Or verse 7, and so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And that's not just talking about, you know, the two streets around them, you know, like Ingleburn. We're talking a whole massive, we're talking Asia Minor, you know. Uh, Paul's discipled them as he's followed the Lord himself uh, and now they have become a model for all kinds of other people. And so verse 8, the Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore we do not need to say anything about it for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn from God uh, to, to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And so it's this wonderful stuff. As, as they were discipled and became fired up for Jesus, so now they become the models for other people to follow. Now last week we started looking at the necessity of those who are older, whether it's in age or in spiritual maturity, to start to take responsibility for discipling those younger than them from Titus chapter 2. The older are meant to be thinking, how can I shape and invest in the lives of the younger? Um, but then I want to take us to this second chapter of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians where he points out what true discipleship looks like and what it involves. Now, what are we going to have to be like if we're going to be under God, people who have that same kind of impact on other people? the same kind of spiritual impact on the lives of those around us because Paul models for us perfectly what a true discipler looks like and it's his model which God's calling on us to imitate. But I want to warn you now, it's challenging stuff. Uh, this is not some quick and easy recipe for success. You know, four hot tips and you know, it's all good. Um, we're talking about a whole commitment uh, we make to other people to model for them, to shepherd them, to guide them in their own walk with Jesus. It's hard and it's costly, but I want to say there's no greater joy. There's no greater joy than to see God at work in people's lives through your own personal ministry to them. Uh, just like the old saying goes, no brain, no pain. No, that's the wrong saying, isn't it? No, no, <laughs> no pain, no gain, right? No pain, no gain. Um, no pain, no gain. 
Uh, and that's what we're going to have to imitate. And I think what Paul does is give us four aspects of his own personal ministry as an example for us to imitate as we seek to invest in the lives of others and disciple them. Four things for us to model ourselves on, uh, four keys to proper spiritual godly ministry. Uh, two of them are internal, uh, two of them are external things. Uh, it's kind of like having an x-ray uh, and a photo at the same time. An x-ray shows you the inside, uh, and in this case it's about what's in the heart, what's in your mind, uh, your attitude and mindset as you go about nurturing other people. Uh, that's the x-ray of Paul, and then the other two are about what he's actually doing, what he's like and how he's behaving. That's the photo of him. So we're going to start with, if I can get this right, hang on, no. An x-ray, there you go, the x-ray. And I love this x-ray here. I'm not quite sure how that man lives. Uh, if you take a good look at it, is that an x-ray of your brain? No? What's different about it? <laughs> it's a mechanical brain there going on inside. But um, that's the kind of x-ray he's giving here in Thessalonians about what makes him tick about what's going on in his processes, in his mind, in his heart. Okay? Uh, and there are two aspects of two internal things. Number one, Paul was fearlessly confident in God. He's got a fearless confidence in God in spite of everything that's happened before and everything that's still happening. And so you see that in chapter 2 and verse 1. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. We dared. Yeah, we, we got out. It was, it was tough. It was hard, but we, we, we went for it. And so it simply started. I mean, the man had such tremendous confidence in the power of God to energise his ministry and that God would do his work as Paul had you know, went about it, even in the face of opposition, he had this sense of invincibility. And that supreme confidence in God doing his work translated into boldness. And it really was bold what he was doing. I mean, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you might remember explain exactly what happened in Philippi and in Thessalonica. In, in Philippi, uh, they, he and his mates have been speaking about Jesus and there had been this poor slave girl who had a, who was demon-possessed and as they spoke about Jesus, uh, she got not only healed but saved. She became a Christian and uh, the problem was that she was making a lot of money for her owner uh, and becoming a Christian kind of dried up his business because he couldn't use and abuse her anymore. Uh, and uh, he called in his mates and they bashed and kicked Paul and his, his buddies and then the soldiers came in and said, what's this ruckus all about? You know who the problem is? It's the Christians. And so they arrested Paul and Silas. Uh, they whipped them and then they hauled them off to jail. They were found innocent of any wrongdoing. And so they were abused both physically and legally in Philippi. But then they got out of jail, head down to Thessalonica a little while away. They preach for three weeks there and the whole city ends up in, a ter in turmoil because the Jewish leaders start a riot, okay, and they're mobbed again. Do you reckon Paul and Silas ever said to themselves, 
time to get her a break, boys. <laughs> you know, this is a little bit upsetting. Maybe we should just tone it down a bit. Uh, no, they head on to Berea and then Athens, and they're courageous, they're tenacious, they're persistent. Why? Because we knew the power of God and we were confident that God was more powerful than our opposition. And we knew that it was God's work we were doing and God was doing his work. He could see the changed lives and so they're, just, they're fearless. And that's what gives strength to ministry, tenacity. God's more powerful than anything that can be thrown at us. He will win and he will do his work in us and through us. Fearless confidence in God. That's the first key to a good discipling ministry, fearless confidence in God. Second aspect, second part of the x-ray was is motivation. Why? Why did Paul keep going? Uh, well, he did it for all the right reasons and none of the wrong reasons. Why did Paul keep going? Verse 3. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. So Paul keeps soldiering on, powering on, doing what he does because who does he want to please? Who does he want to be happy with him and say, good on you? God. That's his audience. He's not trying to impress people. He's not trying to impress the Thessalonians and say, look what a hard man I am. You know? He's trying to impress God. He's trying to please God. He wants God to say, well done, good and faithful servants. He wants to put a smile on God's face. And, and he knows that God loves it when people hear his message and when they come to know him as their saviour uh, and they, they flee from the coming wrath and they turn to Jesus and find forgiveness and freedom in the message of the cross. But notice he also lays out some of the alternative motivations that you could have in discipling others. Other reasons you could be motivated to do reasons that are all bad reasons and yet they're also common. Uh, one error. Uh, he says our message, we didn't do this because of um, a wrong understanding, because of faulty teaching. Uh, lots of people are motivated by error. Why are the JWs and the Mormons so persistent on knocking on your door? Have you ever thought about it? Why do they keep doing it? It's because they're not interested in you. They're earning, they think they're earning brownie points with God which will bring them extra merit in the afterlife. That'll even save them there. So they're not door knocking for your benefit. They're door knocking for their own benefit so that they can be saved. They're motivated by error, a lie, one of the greatest lies around that you can earn brownie points with God. Jesus has paid everything in dying on the cross. We have his mercy and love and forgiveness. That's how we get saved. Greed. That's the second bad motivation. You can make a lot of money out of spirituality, out of selling spirituality. Uh, anyone know whose home this is? It's Joyce Meyer's uh, collection of mansions, her estate. Um, she, she's in the big one in the middle. Uh, in fact, the ministry has paid for all her children's mansions all around the outside. 
kind of thing. So they all live in this big, happy commune in their own mansions and pools and everything like that. Uh, but even in the Anglican church, as a suburban Anglican minister, you can do well if you play your cards right. Um, aim for a parish that overpays. Why is it that the southwest has trouble getting ministers down here? Is it because the people are no good, you know, the food's no good down the shops, you know, it's better on the North Shore? No, it's because the churches of the Upper North Shore pay one and a half times as much as anyone else. Why would you ever want to leave if you, you're in there? Like, simple. I can make more money being there than here. Uh, if you want to do it down here, here's how you do it. What you do is you ingratiate yourself with all the funeral directors, okay, um, because uh, as an anchor minister, you don't, you're not obliged to hand over the fees to the church. Okay, you can, if you want to, take it for yourself and wedding fees and things like that because you don't have to report it to anyone. No one knows what you do during the week. Uh, uh, yeah, as long as you report it to the tax man, you're not going to go to jail. And so you ingratiate yourself with the funeral directors and you do four weddings a week, getting a fee of $250 to $300 for every funeral and stuff. You're making a clear 1000 bucks extra a week on using the time that the church is paying you for. Right? Now, just so you know, our policy here is all monies earned that way go to the church bank account, right? <laughs> because it's double dipping. But, you know, you can, even in sort of um, being a volunteer and stuff, you could get things paid for and get to go on conferences at other people's expense and, and stuff. They're, they're just some of the ways greed can motivate. Or men's praise is the third bad motivation. He said, there's, there's lots of easy ways to be liked, even loved, as a spiritual leader. No one hates the Dalai Lama, do they? He's the good guy. Uh, and even Philip Jensen, as you know, evil and demonic as some people think he is, well, he could be much more well-liked if he just ease up a bit, soften the message, stop saying you know, people will go to hell, as so many senior clergymen have done over the Western world. Uh, you can be totally liked and totally irrelevant. Or bring it down to a more familiar level, you know, why are people in church more interested in being youth leaders than being on the toilet cleaning roster? Or being Sunday school teachers? Because you're more well liked, it's more public, it's, um, you know, it's sexier. People notice you, you get the kudos, you feel good. Now, there are all the wrong reasons you can engage in spiritual service. There are other wrong reasons, but that's the three he mentions here. They're all about self-interest, about getting ahead. And Paul, Silas and Timothy, they had none of them. And we can have none of them if we're going to be faithful witnesses to God and earnestly disciple others. Or to put it a more positive way, what we need is integrity. Integrity. They were totally upfront about who they were and why they were doing it. They didn't use trickery. They didn't use flattery. They didn't use false sincerity or bribe their audiences. They're just upfront about what they're on about. It's all about being honest with people, who you are and why you're here, and I'm here to help you come to know God and to grow as his child. And in the end, the only person to please is God himself. That's the right motivation, seeking to please God and grow people is in the gospel we've been entrusted with to save others and help them mature. 
And really, pleasing God in the end is the only thing that's going to sustain any sort of ministry through opposition and difficulty. Otherwise, we just give up. So they're the internal keys. That's the x-ray. What about the photo? What's on the outside? What's discipling ministry look like? Um, Well, from verse 7, we get the outside, the photo instead of the x-ray. And he says, basically, you want a photo. The photo looks like a picture of mum and a picture of dad. Uh, A picture of mum. Here's my mum. Uh, She's the big one. Uh, uh, That's the latest nephew, Christopher. Uh, She's holding there. Um, But how how does Paul, how is Paul like a mum? That's a funny thing to say, isn't it? Uh, Have a look, second paragraph there. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her children. To her gentleness. We loved you so much we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well because you've become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and our hardship. We worked night and day while we preached so as not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. And so it's this beautiful picture of that what it really means to care for someone spiritually, being concerned about their well-being, sensitive to their personal needs. It implies acceptance, it implies respect, it implies compassion, it implies tolerance of imperfections, it implies impatience, oh sorry, sorry, patience. <laughs> it implies tender-heartedness, it implies loyalty. Now he's saying we weren't abusive to you. We we weren't domineering over you. We were gentle. We were kind to you. We nurtured you. You know, the picture of an ideal mum. Now I know some of you didn't have a great relationship with mum. And maybe you didn't with your dad as well. And it doesn't sound anything like the household you grew up in. It wasn't nurturing and caring like that. And I can say that's not good. And we know it's not good. And I'm really sad for you. Uh, it's all too common these days with um, you know, free sex and easy money for parents that the number of families that have destructive relationships is only on the increase. And, and I think we can have a good ministry to people in those kind of situations. But if that was your situation home, um, I'm, I'm sorry for you, but, and if you want to talk about it afterwards and how do you forgive when you're mistreated by parents, I know some people struggle with that, well, come and talk. But it doesn't mean we can't understand the image here because we know what mums and dads should be like, what they should do for their children. And so if you're a mum, this is a good model for you. Or if you're a grandma, uh, what Paul was like with the Thessalonians, he wasn't a burden, he was gentle, he was caring, he was nurturing. It's much more uh, this kind of picture than this kind of picture. (laughs) Kind of thing, huh? Good model. (laughs) Bad model. <laughs> so what was that? That's reality, did you say? No, no. And that's the ideal. No, that's the other one. <laughs> uh, that's a fascinating verse to challenge for me in verse 8. We loved you so much we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel but our lives as well. There's a, there's a vulnerability there. It's how you really minister to other people. You let them in on the inside. You know, let them know what's really going on and the, your struggles as well as the things you think they're struggling with. But Paul wasn't just like mum. He was like a good dad as well. And that's the other half of the picture. 
in verse 12. Strong, pushing them forward, moulding them, working with them, not breaking them, not beating them, not absent. Uh, let's read what he says. He says, Your witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed, for you know that we dealt with you as a father deals with his own children. And so get this, if, you, if you're a dad or one day you hope to be a dad or you're a granddad, verse 12, what should a dad do? Encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. It's no wonder in a society where there are so many absent fathers, whether through evil intentions and adultery or whether through neglect with overly long work hours and business trips and so on, it's no wonder that so many young boys especially are growing up with no sense of right and wrong, with no discipline, with no self-control, with no thought to others or thought to their own future because their role model isn't around, because that's what dad should be. He's the one setting the tone for the household. He's the one modelling. And the model that so many families have and children have these days is don't be around, don't be involved and don't care. And I'm not just saying this for the benefit of the dads in our congregation because this is true of any sort of real ministry that we, in effect we're going to have on others, discipling. Because that's what Paul was focused on. If we're going to model the Christian life to others, if we're going to challenge others to come to Christ and to grow to maturity, then these same things are to be true of our church family and the way we relate to one another. And so you'd be this kind of dad, not this kind of dad. <laughs> okay? Uh, I mean, isn't that the gag? <laughs> yeah, can hear the whinging child screaming and stuff and shove a sock at his mouth. Your dirty old sock would be best. But, uh, I mean, isn't that men in our community just coming home, slumping down the couch, getting the beer, flicking on the TV? And just don't bother me. That's the one you want to be. That's that's the real dad, right? Encouraging, comforting, teaching. You know? And those are what's to be true of our church family and the way we relate to each other. And and that's the way it's to be. Caring and nurturing like a good mum, teaching, instructing, modelling, disciplining, encouraging like a good dad. And so they're the keys to discipline discipling others. Two internal, two external. Fearless confidence in God, motivated not by self-interest and gain but by trying to please God and serve him, being like a mum, caring for, nurturing others, being like a dad, taking the lead, encouraging, comforting, urging others to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And I think it's no surprise, as Paul went about that work with those keys at the heart of his ministry, that under God, People like the Thessalonians heard the gospel and thought, you know what, this has got meat. And they were transformed into people who knew God deeply and intimately and who themselves became models for all the others out there, not just in their local suburb but right through Asia Minor as the word rang out from them of the mighty power of God who saves lives from death and judgment and who utterly transforms them and remakes them. And so may God be so pleased to use us all in that kind of way as we more and more develop and move and love in that same kind of confidence in God, as we're motivated by a desire to please him and not ourselves, as we become more like good mums and good dads, 
with each other in this congregation, with the younger ones behind us in maturity and age and in their faith, as we seek to make disciples who themselves make disciples of Jesus Christ. Father, uh, please teach us and use us. These words are powerful and challenging. Uh, we thank you for this challenge set before us by your word today uh, to be people who minister the gospel of Jesus to others, who take on that attitude of being like mum and being like dad in their lives, nurturing, growing, modelling, encouraging, rebuking where necessary. We pray for the same confidence that you gave Paul to be in our lives and in our church, for that same motivation of seeking to please you. And we pray, please, for those who struggled with wrong motivations, that you give them the courage to repent uh, and to do things for the right reasons. We pray that all of the leaders of our groups and all those who are growing in their maturity might take their responsibilities seriously. Uh, and we pray for those congregation members whose family's situation isn't ideal, that this has raised up hard issues for them. Uh, we pray for your mercy in their lives, in their family. Help us to minister to them where we can. Uh, and we pray, please, uh, that you would transform our community, not just so they can have good family lives uh, with each other, but good lives with you as their father, knowing an eternity in your home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.